Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to drive giving. QBAC doesn't just measure alumni engagement scores. It uses academic research in cognitive science and positive psychology to actually increase an alum's willingness to give. Quantitative data, such as capacity, gets a prospect into your pipeline. But qualitative data, such as impact stories, gets a prospect through your pipeline. QBAC's AI-driven system uncovers actionable insights and automatically delivers them to major gift officers for use in cultivation. Learn how to raise more money with less by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. I would also like to tell you about Responsive's training. If you're looking to align your entire team around a shared understanding of effective fundraising, let's talk about Responsive's four frameworks. If your culture doesn't feel right, before you begin any significant planning, launch a capital campaign, let's ensure that everyone is on the same page. How about inviting us to be on site with your board, leadership team, volunteers, and staff for your next planning event? If you prefer a virtual event, that'll work too. Let's get your team thinking critically and more carefully about the road ahead. Shoot me an email. I will also put some information in the show notes. Hi, Fraser. I am delighted to have you as my guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I are going to be virtually together at the AFP Ottawa Fundraising Day here in a couple of weeks. And uh, I asked the organizers if I could gather up a couple of my... Uh, couple of other folks that are in the lineup of the event and hear what they're talking about and help uh, promote the event a little bit. So that's what we're doing here today. Uh, I enjoyed a great conversation with your colleague at Good Works this morning. I talked to Holly. Her, I, we, I think we both got ourselves up, up on our pedestals and had all sorts of crazy and great things to say. Uh, and, uh, and maybe that's what you and I'll do here today. But before we dive into our conversation, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Fraser Green. I'm um, a partner partner and uh, smarty pants at GoodWorks, which is a Canadian <laughs> fundraising consulting agency that specializes in uh, direct mail, digital giving, and legacy giving. Uh, my first career was in politics. I was the national director of the NDP in Canada, which would be the equivalent of a Bernie Sanders-type Democratic Party. Uh, we sort of have two democratic parties in this country, a left one and a more center one. I was in the left one. Um, and so I've been marketing and communicating throughout my entire career, which spans some 50 years now, uh, I have to admit. Um, and I'm doing a session at Fundraising Day that you just mentioned on uh, the power of storytelling. And in that session, I'm going to lay out seven very specific ingredients to the perfectly told story. 
Okay, so before we dive into the topic, I've got to I got to take advantage of your background and your history and your awareness of politics and stuff. Is because I tend to be one of those guys that tends to think that if we had more political parties here in the U.S., a lot of things could be worked out a little better than where they find themselves. And I tend to because and I and I've been paying attention for a number of years since college, so twenty plus years at the idea that, you know, over in England, we have multiple parties, you guys have multiple parties, but we just can't seem to get beyond these two sort of big parties. What's your thoughts on, tell me, what what does a guy like me need to know about that? It's a great question. I've been telling my friends and political hack buddies for the past year or so that I really think uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are going to have a very hard time holding their parties together. I, th- I think each of them actually contains two, perhaps more than yeah. two. On yep, the Democrat yep. side, I think there's a Joe Biden, moderate, small L liberal, classic sort of Democrat identity, with, which yeah. works at the margins and, and says the right things, but really makes progress in inches. And I would yeah. include Obama in that group. And I would include yep. JFK in that group. Um, yeah. And then you've got a much more, if not radical, uh, ideological left group where AOC and Bernie Sanders and so on, uh, who are really out to make some structural and fundamental change to the economy and to society and to the way cities work and the way police work and not just nibble at the margins, if you like. Maybe I'm reflecting my own bias there. On the Republican side, I think that there is a, a core of kind of Nelson Rockefeller, Dwight D. Eisenhower, yeah. moderate, yeah. Main Street, yeah. small town businessman, somebody <laughs> from the Chamber of Commerce in Dubuque, Iowa, uh, you know, the kind of small government, um, maybe not too socially conservative, but kind of fiscally conservative, want to manage yeah. things well. They're more about the management of government than trying to use government as a tool to make the world a better place. Or, uh, And then you've got... And forgive me, you've got this Trump evangelical, yeah, radical, sometimes <laughs> illiterate, uh, yeah, and to my view, kind of loony um, element that that have just a whole different view of the world, and yeah, you know, immigrants are villains, and and if yeah, us versus them, elements and all right. the rest of it, and I think both the democ if and as a former CEO of a political party, if I was a CEO of either the Democrats or the Republicans, whether I did it publicly or privately at this point, I would be pulling together some version of a really good think tank to figure out if this thing can be knit back together, or if in fact we need to allow it to like cells, you know divide yeah. into two and figure out how yeah. those two can coalesce and form a majority. Um, I, I question, frankly, whether this is the end of the Roman empire. And I think it's funny you mentioned that. I think the next 10 or 20 years is up to you guys to decide whether you want to, you know, put Humpty I, Dumpty back on the wall or let yeah. him collapse into a bunch of different pieces. I don't know. I would, the, the, the conversation I had, in fact, some of my own research came up in my conversation with Holly earlier about how social uh, social systems collapse because I've been reading um, Joseph Tainter's stuff on basically how societies collapse. And it's the complexity, you know, you get these sort of these multiple sort of dominoes that sort of fall on each other and you get all this complexity that's sort of built into the system. 
and and they collide and start, things start to collapse one over one on top of the other. And, um, you know, social systems, financial systems, all of the thing, health, you know, the, the health crisis that we're still just trying to sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. If, if, before, before we move to the subject, I'm just, to, forgive me listeners that I'm hijacking <laughs> this, but I'm getting some, I'm getting some political, political, uh, counseling here, I guess you could say. <laughs> so I, wait, I read, I, I read, I read way too much Ayn Rand when I was in college. And I still see myself relatively libertarian in the sense that, you know, free market economy, I want to be a business owner. I want to build my, you know, my economic kingdom, I guess you could say. Uh, forgive me for that. But I, I'm really leaning into my sort of the, the more socially liberal sort of side of that, that, that more libertarian thinking sort of can permit if you, if you really have a handle on some of that thinking. What does that look, what does that person like me look like in Canada? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I have an answer. Um, because I, because I, I can generally get along with my, as long as I'm talking about social issues, I can generally get along with my you know my left leaning friend, and especially in the nonprofit sector. Most of the time, we're in the nonprofit sector. A lot of times, we're very focused on social issues, and so I get along with those those you know left or right issues. I can generally get along with them just fine, but I do tend to. What, what I would Go say ahead, is, what I, that's okay. What, what I would say is that while our politicians like yours will bombast and, you know, exaggerate their criticisms and accuse the other of having every awful kind of motivation in the world, I yeah. think Canadians by and large uh, don't like to see politicians throw mud at each other. Uh, and I yeah. think Canadians for the most part are willing to accept divergence and diversity. I mean, I, I think, yeah, for example, yeah. of the city of Toronto, which is one of the world's great cities, it's one of the biggest cities in North America, probably next to New York, L.A., Chicago, and Houston. Um, and in Toronto, when I was in kindergarten, that city was 95% white. Now, the majority of the population of the greater Toronto area is non-white. And yet, we don't have riots. <laughs> We don't, I'm not saying yeah. it doesn't have problems, and there are there aren't pockets yeah. of crime and so on. But sure, it's a it's a it's a respectful, diverse place where we don't expect everybody to look like us or act like us or think like that us. In fact, most of us, I believe, think that we're all better off for the differences and for the diversity. Yeah. And I would also say that. Yeah. Canadians differ fundamentally from Americans. And I've been in, I think, 40 states. Um, and I, I love traveling in the states. And I love meeting Americans. Um, some of your politicians, I think, are out to lunch. But, but I, I think Americans wave the flag of individual liberty in a way that Canadians yeah. just don't. Uh, Canadians are more, we're in the sandbox together. We have to play nice. Yeah. We have to make room for each other. And when we allow one to do too much without, they're going to come back with a knife, and we don't want that. Yeah. So let's make sure that we maintain certain minimum standards and so on. Now, those are under threat, as they are across the world, but I think we yeah. look at things somewhat differently. I don't know if that even yeah, starts I, to answer your question. I teach, a, I teach a nonprofit course in social entrepreneurship over at the local college, and, and that's one of the things. I don't use the sandbox, sandbox analogy, but that's exactly what we're talking about, about how – 
when I talked to my students, I was just saying this to them last night about how the nonprofit sector is in essence, you know, a sandbox of having divergent views. And we have to, you, you can be at a conference learning how to be a really great organization and raise a hell of a lot of money, but the person sitting next to you may be on the complete polar opposite of a particular issue. And you've just got to learn how to be in the sandbox and get along. And I don't know, I don't even know if some of us inside the sector, this is, this is some of the stuff that I talk about with my students. I don't know if, if so many of us, even in where the sector finds itself right now and where the fundraising professional profession finds itself now, even really understands that, that the sector is designed to be this place where the marketplace and the government sort of lets us down and sort of fails to deliver on its promises. And we're supposed to be that place where we sort of, play together really well in the sandbox where we don't have to be us versus them. And, 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 and maybe, yeah. So anyway, I appreciate the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the total first 10 minutes being a political uh, counseling session, as I called it. But uh, Frazier, what are you going to be talking about with our friends uh, at, uh, at, uh, at fundraising day? Uh, my, my topic is uh, seven steps to the perfect story. Uh, laying out seven very specific, very measurable, very concrete elements you can build into a, a skeleton or a plan, if you like, to tell a yeah. story so that you can be the most persuasive fundraiser you can be. So unpack this for us, brother. Well, um, I, I, I don't necessarily want to walk through the seven steps themselves. Sure, I mean, sure, we, sure. We sure. can get there if you want to. I think I think it's really important. Uh, at least from my perspective, to understand a few fundamental things. And you, you asked me okay. before we started the podcast to, you know, lay out a big idea or two. Um, yep. One one of the big ideas I would lay out to your to your audience and, and uh, my new friends is that communications, in my view, really boils down to two very simple things. The first is telling stories. The second is listening. And if you and fundraisers are by definition communicators. And if you want to be a great fundraiser, you need to really up your game in terms of storytelling, and you need to really up your game in terms of listening to your donors yeah. and your prospects and your communities. Um, people of my cohort who were trained in communications at university, let's say, they yes. were really trained in how to broadcast a message, send it out, and that's it. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, yeah. we've been in a 2.0 world for a long, long time now. And the whole essence of 2.0 was how do you say something and then listen to the response? And so I would say that is the, the first uh, big idea I would get across. Um, secondly, you know, we evolved as human beings uh, to communicate. Uh, we We first had the ability to talk to each other, to use language verbally anywhere between 50 and 200,000 years ago. And I've read recently anthropologists debating when we first started talking to each other and based on when we developed our, our larynx and when we had vocal capability yeah, to form yeah. consonants and vowels. And because your, your voice box uh, doesn't last as a fossil, there's no definitive answer, right? You can't carbon date yeah. the way you can with some other stuff. And we, we started written language around 6,000 years ago, but I would contend that the reason we created language in the first place was because we had a need to tell stories to each other, that telling yeah. stories to each other is just so fundamental and deep within the human experience 
you know, think about, you know, when you're, when you and your wife connect at the end of the day, she comes home, she's been out, you've been working at home or whatever. What's the first yeah. thing to say? How was your day? When you say, how was your day? You're not inviting a monosyllabic grunt. You know, you're not inviting good. You're inviting a story because if you hear about a meeting she was in or how her boss was mean or how she had a great time talking at lunch with someone, you're starting to share her day. You were apart from her. And when she tells you a story, you start to connect. You start to be a part of her day and you start to actually intersect with her again, which is where you want to be. It's the same with our kids. When our kids come home from school, how was your day, honey? You want to hear a story because the story lets you into their life and lets you understand what their experiences has been that day. And we use stories. We use stories to teach lessons. We use stories to share the news. We use stories to entertain around a campfire. Uh, and most importantly, we use stories to connect. If you think about human relationships of any kind with your parents, with your siblings, with your teachers, the relation, yeah. I'll, I'll, I come out of a Christian tradition, the relationship sure. Jesus had with his disciples, parables sure. yeah. and stories. And I mean, we've yeah. been doing it for as long as we've been walking on two feet. They're absolutely. Is it? Is it <clears throat> So I think I think the um, I think the because I, I, I see I see a lot of us talking about storytelling and it's kind of bugged me for the last several years as I've thought of it because and it's rooted in the same sort of critique that you might have as you were uh, as you were starting your your those comments um, the idea that historically storytelling so if you think about storytelling sort of being the the sort of the the the, the thing we do as of late, because it's, it's, it's what a lot of us talk about, but if it's being done in a broadcasting sort of way, you, you miss the opportunity to do is, is just as what you said, you, you miss the opportunity to do the listening. And then what I think is actually the story, it's, it's kind of like what I do. Uh, so I spend a lot of time, most people who see and, and hear me and interact with me, for example, we interact on LinkedIn, for example, I'll post something on the internet on, on social media and and it's it's actually not the story that I'm telling in my single post, but it's kind of like the story that emerges between my my post and 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 just this thread of dialogue that sort of happens. And is fundraising still at the place where we're still trying to do so much broadcasting, and that we don't understand that the tools that we now have allow us to sort of put half the story out into the world, and then allow people to basically tell us in some ways, tell us their story back. And then what is the more richer experience is when the story, when it's kind of, it's, it's two directional. I mean, I, when I put something out on, on LinkedIn, for example, I'm putting it out there to provoke thought and to provoke dialogue. I inevitably learn something, not only because I put something out there, but because people start sort of wrestling with it and they tell me their own experiences and so forth and so forth. Is that what we're sort of missing in fundraising right now is we're just so much about telling and we're not about sort of receiving or something? Let me let me t take a big step back and then come back in. Uh, sure. Another big idea I would I would uh, offer to your to your listeners is that I've been saying this to my clients and to organizations I've been involved with as a volunteer for many years now. There's no such thing as the public anymore. We don't all live in cities. We're not all white. We're not all university educated. Yeah, we yeah. don't all vote. We don't all care about the same thing. Again, yeah. I'm I'm older. I'm I'm right in the middle of the baby boom cohort. 
when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, I was 14 years old or 12 years old or something like that. Um, yeah. And everybody watched it on TV. Everybody, including Canadians, watched JFK's funeral on TV. Yes. The whole world, yes. you know, or at least North American world, was in one place at one time doing one thing. That never happens anymore. There's no, you know. You, you was it happening? Um, let me challenge. Was it happening then? Yeah, I think did, so. Did, yes. Okay, so it was because because I, I think I think some of the I think some of the flaws and some of our thinking is is that we still think we think that everybody was necessarily watching, and I don't know. I mean, that is the critique, Fraser, that 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 the people on the left side of the aisle, for example, would say um, about Trump's sort of "Make America Great Again" sort of thing is that he was basically telling us he's telling a story that assumes that everybody wanted that particular make America great again or whatever. And that's really that broadcasting era that sort of assumes that the story you're telling is the story everybody gives a damn about. And quite frankly, we live in a world now where, you know, there's so many stories to absorb that, that broadcasting just doesn't work. Yep. I I think. Yeah. And so I come from a, a mindset where in communications today, even though the session I'm doing and the topic of this conversation is storytelling, I think yeah. the most important element for communicators, fundraisers, and any communicator to be mindful of is audience targeting and audience selection, because there are so many audiences right now. Um, yeah. You know, you asked right. if there ever really was one audience. Audience. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad, my dad's cohort, my dad's in his 80s now. Everybody yeah. my dad's age, even in Canada, knew who Walter Cronkite was. Everybody yeah, knew right. who Walt Disney was. You know, yes. <laughs> and that isn't the case anymore. Uh, we all yeah. don't know who who the who the anchor people are on the major news net, networks because we don't all watch news at all. We don't consume it, <laughs> and so the audiences are all over the place. And the hardest thing for me to work with clients on is to say, look. You're not trying to build public awareness. You're trying to get 3% of the public to know who yes. you are and give a damn about what you're doing. And then really, yes. you know, so so take your mindset and take 10% of that group you'd like to reach and then cut it in half again. And then really use laser-like focus to get down in a meaningful way because we also live in such a noisy, over-communicated world. I mean, and we all have heard the numbers. We, we receive something like 6,000 marketing-type messages a day. Buy this, lose weight, vote for me, stop this bad habit, you know, adopt a dog, do all this stuff. And our brains, again, back to evolution, we can't handle it all. We don't have the, yeah. we don't have the C drive for it. We don't have the bandwidth. So we want to bounce <laughs> these messages back out. So if you're going to penetrate that defense that we all have and get through to someone's brain, it's got to be uh, framed in a way that they're already interested in and predisposed to listen to, because to come out of out of left field and say you've never thought about this before and you really don't give a damn, but I'm going to make you inter- that you've lost them already. It's yeah. you've got, you've got about nine seconds to say this is who you are. This is where I think you start a communication of any kind. Now this is who you are. This is how I yeah. understand you. When you hear yourself described, you go yeah. That is me. That is what I care about. Okay, what have you got to say? Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I'm gonna. I, I, I want to. So, okay. Let me, sorry, and let me just okay. offer one more thought. You offered the okay. you know broadcasting a story and telling it back. Broadcasting yeah. a story, 
probably still works with my dad's cohort. In some cases, it probably works with my cohort if we already have a strong interest in the subject matter of that story. My 21-year-old stepdaughter, who was sitting in the sofa opposite me listening for 10 minutes and has just left the room, totally different and probably needs to be engaged in feeding back very quickly in order for her to maintain her interest. And with my daughter, who's 31, uh, millennial, you know, and she 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 wants to feed back in very quickly and be a yes. part of the story and not just be a passive witness to the story. So I, I don't think, you know, so many questions that are put at me these days that are framed in kind of an either or way. Yeah. My answer yep. is almost always both. It depends yep. who yep. the audience is. It depends who you're trying to reach or who you're trying to interest. I'm it's trying also, not to get too esoteric with this, but it's uh, what I, no, it's no. What this I is this is what this is this is what we do here. So, <clears throat> my mother, my mother grew up in Southern California. Um, she was born two 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 years after Disneyland. You mentioned Walt Disney, for example. She she was she grew up in Anaheim, two blocks or whatever from Anna, you know, from Walt Disney or Disney World, and. What always sort of occurs to me when I think about sort of a worldview that's being shaped by Walt Disney, for example, in Disney World uh, or Disneyland, um, is it's it's is is its perfection or it's it's sort of being perceived as perfect um, and it's manufactured. And I think part of the story that we have the opportunity to tell, I had a guest on here recently who was sort of talking about how quickly now we can put stories out there, but it's it's kind of like what we're doing right here. You and I are literally going to produce this conversation in a matter of an hour. I'm not going to edit it. And I embedded in what I'm doing right here is I know I'm probably going to say something stupid. And because (laughs) I know that, because I know that I just build into my way of thinking that I'm going to have to perhaps apologize later for something stupid that I said. And I think that broadcasting message that you're talking about that we were putting out, you know, 40 years ago, we were so concerned about it being perfect that it caused us to sort of refine it to perfection. And what I think is happening now is, is when I think about fundraising, when I think about storytelling in the fundraising space, I think we have some of the most compelling stories that are always happening and they're also some of the dirty, I mean, it's the dirty, gritty, hardest sort of stuff about our society. We ought to be telling these stories like in real time. But if we keep, if we keep doing storytelling with a broadcasting sort of approach, we're just going to end up with the way that Walt Disney built Disneyland. It's just going to come across as fake and it, contrived. Right? Am I right? No, no, I mean, absolutely. You've touched on just something. say sorry. Just say sorry when you offend your guest because you put your foot in your mouth. That's what I've just learned how to do. Let me let me uh, come with a, a kind of a radical idea to throw out to your to your audience. What if your next annual report, or what if your next newsletter, or what if your website was all written in the first person? What if every word that your organization communicated yeah. out was from a person? saying I, me, you, as yes. opposed to the corporate voice. Since, right. since 1942, the American <laughs> Cancer Society has been at the forefront of leadership <laughs> and conducting yes. you know, blah, 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 blah. people tune that stuff out so fast. They do, and if yes. There's one thing I wish 
my friends and colleagues and clients in philanthropy could do, it would be, it's like, I think of Eric Clap- Clapton unplugged on MTV. I'm dating myself. Yeah. Again. But like yeah. strip down the special effects, pick up an electric, uh, an acoustic guitar and just play and sing the song. And don't try to amplify it and, and put on the reverb effect and echo chambers and whatever and a wah-wah pedal. I mean, those things are all great in their own place, but strip it. it, And that's why I'm such a big believer in storytelling, because telling a story, if you do it right. Let me give an example. My my area of specialty in in fundraising is legacy giving, uh, gifts and wills Mm -hmm. or plan giving. And I know from from the work of Russell James at Texas Tech University, uh, I think a genius. He's actually put MRIs on people's heads when they're talking about legacy gifts. And he knows what the brain actually does. And one of the things he has learned is that the most powerful persuader to, say, a loyal donor of your charity who might consider a legacy gift or a gift in their will, the best way to persuade them is not to have your CEO boast about your organization or have a celebrity talk about how much they love you. It's to have another donor who's made a bequest already tell the story of her life of her connection to the cause, yes. of how she yes. came to be involved with you a long time ago, yes. and how ultimately she chose to leave a gift in her will. Yeah. That persuades people better than anything else we geniuses who who make our money doing this stuff can cook <laughs> up. Like it's, it's 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 straight up unauthentic. And probably the best work I've done in the last five years has actually been interviewing these legacy donors in really human deep ways talking about the night their husband died and how they felt and and really getting deep into it and getting kind of almost bloody fingers if you like so that i can then the next day write that story in her voice and get it right and make it real and make it her story and not me writing my own story and just putting her name at the end of it that's what works and that's what donors are hungry for and i think that's what fundraisers are hungry for is real human connection and it comes from authentically told stories that are real and not overly manufactured they're authentic okay so you you watched the um i have to imagine you watched the mad men the don draper mad men series right yep so a lot of your generation sort of was influenced and sort of came that's the broadcasting era right yep. that that is yep. the essence of the so anybody that's sort of your age sort of in many ways sort of watched that show and said that's that's basically in some ways who we wanted to be and and i think what technology but but see the thing about don draper is is he was an extraordinary storyteller but you never really knew if the story was accurate or true because there was no data to back it up right there was no technology and so i think what got don draper and i think we've still got a lot of don drapers running around in our space right now because they haven't realized that it's still the same storytelling skill that Don Draper had, but he's also has to exist in a world now where if your story doesn't line up with what the data is saying, which kind of gets to what you were just saying a few moments ago, if the, if, if the information that once you put that story out there, if the information you're getting back is not accurate, doesn't line up, you sure as hell are going to have to be a little more humble and say, Hey, I told the wrong story. I told it the wrong way, or I zeroed in on the wrong, you know, the, 
<laughs> like 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 uh, like James, the guy you know at Texas Tech. I've had him on the podcast here too. If if we have if we now imagine Don Draper trying to convince us in the late 1950s up against somebody like James who. What's his first name? Remind Russell. me, James's first Russell. name. Russell. Russell James. Yeah. Imagine the Don Drapers of the world trying to compete with somebody like Russell James, who's basically saying, look, I understand that that concept and that that story resonates. But look, the science doesn't show that, the, you know, the the yeah. things are not going off in your brain and we have to adapt uh, you know, I think uh, we named our company Responsive Fundraising largely because we recognize that adaptation and change or responsiveness is the essence of what we in fundraising have to do. You have to always be in a mode of change because the world's not going to stop. And if you've got to raise money to do anything, you're going to be constantly adapting to whatever the whatever's going on. Absolutely. In fact, just to... I have been questioning for a number of years now when we are going to stop using the word donors. <laughs> like, okay. What, what, yeah. Why, you know, what are we taps money? Like, no, some of us want to get involved. Some of us want to volunteer. Yes. Some of, why do we yes. call everybody donors? Cause it's easy for us. Well, we've got to yeah. stop making it easy for us and we've got to think from the outside in. Let me, let me come at something else that's related to what you were just saying. Back in the seventies, I did a BA in economics. And I was taught a whole bunch of stuff about consumers being rational and, you know, yeah. supply and demand and utility yes. and yeah. value and so on. Yeah. And, and all of that has gone out the window. In the 1990s, we developed the MRI machine to the point where we could actually measure what the human brain was doing in real time. And yeah. in, in the 1990s, our knowledge of human thinking and feeling and behavior doubled and in the and in the first uh decade of this millennia from 2000 to 2010 it doubled again and from 2010 to 2020 it doubled again we know eight times more about the actual working of the human brain than we did in 1990 now there's this thing called behavioral economics that we've traveled on to so when you walk into a grocery store there is music playing in the background ambient music that you probably don't notice but it has been deliberately chosen to get you to slow the pace of your step so that you'll spend more time walking by shelves and there will be a greater chance that you'll reach out and take something. They do something like anchoring where they'll, you know, instead of saying Campbell's soup, 59 cents, when you do that, the average person buys four cans. When you say Campbell's soup, 59 cents, limit 12 to a customer, suddenly people start buying seven cans instead of four. They've anchored on this idea of 12 yes, being the average yeah. quantity that people buy and so on. Like there's so many ways that the human brain just takes shortcut. 85% of everything we do happens in our unconscious. We think and we try to give each other the Kool-Aid that we decide things and we're deliberate and we're conscious every moment of every day. Hell no. <laughs> No, we're yeah. we're, on, yeah, we're been, on autopilot all the time. And we're not I, even I've been reading. Yeah. So I uh, researching this current book project. Um, I have been watching, uh, watching sort of that, that, that emergence of behavioral, behavioral economics and oftentimes thought, okay, what if fundraising could take if, because the economics world, if you think about the world of economics, cause that's, that, that sounds like that's your world. You totally get that. 
if you think about the way that the economics world has sort of had to evolve is when you when you start when you start taking a more interdisciplinary this is my point I'm getting at if when you start taking an interdisciplinary sort of perspective on anything, which is essentially what behavioral economics have forced us to do, it's taking yeah. what we know about economics and adding it with psychology and adding it with a whole lot of other things too. I mean, sociology gets in there. And, and I mean, is that some of the flaw that sort of is at the core of the way that we've historically approached fundraising? And is that where we're going is when we start to take more of a, just a, just a, Yes, this is an interdisciplinary type of work. It is an exploratory, interdisciplinary type of work that oftentimes requires us to have many people from all sorts of d domains and disciplines and stuff. I mean, so much of the Don Drapers of the world came from PR, marketing, and advertising, very much oriented towards the consumer market. And when when things like behavioral and economics sort of come come into the into the into the marketplace those guys thinking is totally sort of knocking off a lot of that 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 preconceived stuff that came that originated with guys like don draper jason the next time they have an afp icon uh international conference where we can actually go you and i yeah. should set up a table and sell t-shirts that say burn down the silos like let me yeah. give you one right. let me yes. give you one yes. simple example and i've never said this to an audience before but i'll I'll, I'll do the honor with you. Let's, okay, take, let's okay. take this thing we call plan giving. I think yeah. plan giving should be taken and should be cut in half. And the major gift, wealthy people, face-to-face, one-on-one, complex sure. gift arrangements, tax considerations, financial planning, all of that piece should go over to the major gift side. Meanwhile, okay. the 90 to 95% of the gifts that you actually get at your charity come from your annual donors who've been giving you 50 or or $100 a year for 20 years. They're yes. giving you a legacy gift because they paid off a mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> and when they died, the house got sold. Yeah. And for the first time and only time in their existence in a position to make a significant gift, those people should all go over to the direct response annual giving Sure. Stream. Yet we've created this thing called plan giving. And we have, and I can never remember the name properly in this in the States, the National Association of Gift Planners or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? <laughs> like <laughs> we don't need to. Like if you start I brought up with uh... if you start with the donor, if you start with the audience, if you if you look at it from the outside in, the way we've yeah. constructed a lot of fundraising doesn't make sense. But it's convenient. It's, it's very linear. It, it goes back. That goes back to. So we were we were in the 1950s a few minutes ago. That goes back to the the Enlightenment and the uh, Industrial Revolution, which we were talking about before we hit the record button. It's it's a very. We assume that all the world works in a very linear process, like a like a damn machine, and it doesn't. And human beings are not machines. But you know, in between what you're in between what you're saying, I I almost wonder if if part of our challenge is is we're sort of unwilling to, um, this is one of the things that Holly and I were just talking about this. I was talking about my grandfather. My grandfather was still a working, he was still working uh, in, in, in the later half of, you know, prior to retirement up in, and, and he was a grouchy, he was a grouchy union guy who really afforded my, me and my sister, his grandchildren, a miserable experience. And, but what he did when when he got his great grandchildren in front of him, my children, I watched him turn into a much more generous guy. Mm -hmm. You know, eighty plus years old, he turned into a whole much more generous person. And and I kind of wonder if and I'm, I'm relating this to your comments about planned giving. 
if if we see everything in sort of this very linear fashion and we don't recognize that perhaps there are these times of life where people just are not as generous and they're just terribly distracted you know i don't know if the i don't know if the 20 years between the time that my grandfather was say 55 and 75 he was even going to give a damn about anything and you'd probably be better you'd probably be better, be better off just putting direct mail in his mailbox than anything else but to engage him at 75 plus, like when he was engaging with my my children, his great grandchildren, he became a much more generous guy. Yeah. Does I, that make sense? Are you factoring yeah, in what I'm saying? Are you, are you getting it? Sense. If, if there's I, I have a friend who's a, a, a communications guru in Canada and he yeah. and I have co-presented things together. And he has said, you know, Canada is a very big country and we've got a lot of diversity. Uh, we have I, I have just moved to the province of Quebec. Uh, where French yeah. is the predominant language, um, and you know we 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 we're a very diverse place, and yet my friend Bernie Goche has said, in, and he's a focus group genius, and he said I've done focus groups across this country for years, I've interviewed people on all kinds of topics, I've talked to all kinds of people from coast to coast to coast. We have a third coast, the Arctic Ocean, and yes. you know, and and he said, but the one constant differentiator in this country is age. If I talk to I'll use your example. If I talk to a group of 18-year-olds in Wilmington, Delaware, and I talk to a group of 18-year-olds in Spokane, Washington, I hear pretty much the same thing. And if I talk to a group of 75-year-olds in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I talk to a bunch of 75-year-olds in Des Moines, Iowa, I hear pretty much the same thing. Age really separates us. And the one thing I tell to plan giving fundraisers is you need to understand what it's like to be Jason's grandfather or father-in-law yes. whatever it was, uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you can't expect your donor to understand what it's like to be a 30-year-old fundraiser when he's 75. Yes. It, it's incumbent yeah. upon you. And the place I always encourage them to start is to go on to TED Talks and watch Jane Fonda talk about life's third act. What happens after mm-hmm. we hit the age of 60? And we don't yeah. feel we have to prove a whole lot. Then. And I'm yeah. recently crossed that bridge and I kind of have gone through this experience. I became a grandparent. I don't feel I need to write another book, which you're doing. I mean, you're yes. younger than I am, right? Yeah and, yeah. and yet my granddaughter, who is in Vancouver, 3,000 miles away from me, and I can't travel right now, that's my heartache right now, is I can't be close to my daughter and my granddaughter. Our priorities shift, and we care about different things. And we want to, after age 60, answer the question, has this life been worthwhile? Did I turn out to be the person I really wanted to be? And if I didn't, what can I still do to make it right? And how can I be well-remembered? And how can I leave a footprint on this world that I'm going to be proud of? I mean, I'm feeling moved as I'm saying these words. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is important, yeah. meaningful stuff. And in our, and yet, when I remember asking my mother when my daughter was young, oh, mom, were we like that when we were six or something? And she said, she looked at my daughter for a minute. And she said, oh, honey, I don't remember. I would have been in my 30s then, and I don't remember my 30s. She was raising four kids. She had a full-time job. She was helping her husband run a run a small business. She was run yeah. off her feet, you know. And yeah. The, the, yeah. the life experience of being in your 30s, raising children, if that's what you're doing, and being in your 60s and having a granddaughter, you know, very different. Like I've got time. I get to read twice a day. Like, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if you got maybe you got you guys are in direct marketing, so you get this. And and, and it, it's fascinating to be talking to a guy who has both an economics background who's older than I am, you, you, you're just, you, you got a, a, several of the right pieces here. 
because I have said to, I'm building a business. I'm yes, I'm writing books. I'm doing all the things that I'm doing, but there is a gap between the ages of 35 and 55. And we talk about this in economics that there's a, I, I think it's like a life cycle sort of arch and it's the, it's 35 to 55 where we're basically having children paying. We first, we pay for diapers, then we pay for braces, then we pay for college, then we pay off our mortgage. And then we got to figure out how to pay for college, you know, whatever. Yep. And that's a 20 year arch that most of us in Western society sort of live in. And it's the Democrat and it generally represents a large chunk of the people that are in our files, you know, that are ultimately going to become those plan giving donors. But for 20 years, you're not going to get much interaction from them people at all, you know, and I don't know if we factor that sort of thinking in, but even if we do on a, uh, say on an expert level where, you know, group like yours has come in and sort of, are we teaching that sort of stuff? You mentioned AFP, for example, are we teaching that arch that we teach that your economics professor would teach us? Are we teaching that to fundraisers who perhaps missed it in their college economics courses? I think we, in our professional associations, and I include uh, gift planning, uh, CAGP in Canada, uh, AHP, yeah. I would include. I think we miss a lot of opportunities. We seem yeah. to be either rehashing the same old story over and over and over again, or we're all about tipping the world upside down and innovating to this ridiculous degree and throwing the baby yes. out of the bathwater. Yes. I have always benefited hugely from, as you talked about earlier, studying other disciplines. Most of what I learned about fundraising and even about how to run political campaigns, I learned reading the Harvard Business Review and reading the business section at my local big box bookstore. Like Totally. What does Ted Peters say about this? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a, uh, I could have taken, listen, I, maybe, maybe this, you remind me of a, so I'm sitting having lunch or dinner with a major donor, probably two years into my fundraising career. And this gentleman, so this guy worked for Eli Lilly in Indianapolis, um, a scientist. And he said, Jason, if you really want to get really good at this work, just read the financial times of the USA today. That's what he told me to do. He said pretty much anybody, and he was he was he was sort of stereotyping who the major donor was. He was a white older gentleman, so he's kind of boxing him in and expecting me to assume that uh, he was the donor I would always be interacting with. I, I I we can perhaps assume, but nonetheless, he was basically saying that if you can read the Financial Times of the or the financial section of the USA Today, you can always you're always pretty much assured of the ability to sort of relate to a guy like me when you're sitting across the lunch table. Yeah. And yeah. and it and it has been those sort of nuggets of wisdom that I think sort of don't get taught in the breakout sessions at things like AFP, you know, and certainly you and I are going to, because we're sort of stirring it up. So we know what we're now, we know what we're all going to be talking about in Ottawa here in a couple of weeks, but it seems like those are the things that just, just we're, we're so much about sort of solving our clients or solving the fundraiser sort of immediate, immediate short term. Yeah. How do I generate cash really quickly? When in fact, what we need to be doing is encouraging these young fundraisers to think more critically and carefully about the work that they're doing. Because I think once they get some of these concepts in their head, once they get some of these concepts in their head, honestly, they become less dependent upon us. We become yeah. less, it becomes less about us yeah. being a guru yeah. or an expert on a yeah. platform because you yourself get this stuff. Yeah. And, and it's because they haven't developed that their own sort of intuitive interdisciplinary understanding. Gosh, you got me riled up. Um, 
that we that that that, that that's why we get so elevated, and that's also why we oftentimes disappoint them so much. And let, let me give you an example. The other thing we love to do is as fundraisers is jump on the next bright shiny thing as if we're crows, you know, like there's yeah. a piece of foil on the road. I gotta have that. Um, yeah. So I hear someone from a hospital foundation saying, we hardly have any millennial donors. We need millennial donors. Well, in Canada, and I would be surprised if it's a lot different in the U.S., people don't really start using hospitals until age 50. And our consumption of hospital services doubles every decade in life after the age of 50. Yes, sir. Totally. Right, right. Who's going to give to hospitals, people who have used hospitals, and are either grateful for the, what the services they've received or they're anticipating and they want to pay an insurance premium to make sure that they get good service when they're going to need it. So yeah. your hospital audience at the bottom is about age 50. Yeah, you had your babies there. And yeah, maybe one of your kids broke his foot on a skateboard. But you really start to care about hospitals after age 50. If you're the Macular Degeneration Society of America, are you going to get millennial donors? No. Why? Because almost everybody with macular degeneration yeah. is over the age of 65. Yeah. On, now, if you're a Greenpeace or, you know, or Charity Water or something, yeah, you could start going younger. But but you've just got to apply some, some judgment and some common sense. And I think the art of fundraising, like so many other things in life, is asking good questions. And then having, this is the other big piece of it, then having actually some time and some energy left over to pursue the answers to those questions. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to just meeting meeting the agendas, often unrealistic, of your boss who's who's given you 130% of a full-time job to do, and then it still expects you to grow and be smart and, you know, innovate and achieve. It's really hard. These are really hard times for fundraisers, at least in my world. There's yeah, so I much think... expected of us, and we're just not given the tool. There's a mat leave. We're not going to replace her this year. So the six of you are going to have to do the work of seven. But that year never ends. And then something else gets – you know, yeah. we've been doing this since 2008, if you want to look at a milestone, since yeah. the economic meltdown. Again, in my country, and I'd be surprised if it's a lot different. Oh, I think we've been doing less. it since – yeah, I, 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 I talked less. about it. I talk about it in this new book. I think we've been doing it for the last two decades. Most of my, so I've been in fundraising for two decades. I think it all started around the turn of the century with September 11th. And we've had these three sort of economic sort of downturns. We've had these big unpredictable events and everybody's trying to still run the old machines that we inherited from the late 1950s and 60s. And it's not working anymore. And, and I think, and, and, and people are right now digging in their heels on this, these ways of thinking that perhaps need to sort of evolve. But th- there, there was something, there was something you said a few minutes ago that, that has me thinking that, that perhaps if we want this, if we want this sort of this interdisciplinary sort of way of thinking to sort of become the norm in our profession, does it does it in some way sort of change? Doesn't it in some way sort of change? Um, Tetlock is his name. Tetlock, Tetlock is a is a is a researcher who basically looked at people with expertise, and he basically found he called them hedgehogs and hedgehogs and foxes. And the hedgehogs were the types who sort of dug in there, he dug in and looked at one thing, and they deep knew knowledge. one thing yeah. right. They deep knowledge right. 
And I think we've got a lot of hedgehogs out there, but we don't have a lot of foxes. And what 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 Tetlock found is is that the best experts in in that were the best at forecasting things in a in a in whatever domain were those who didn't have this deep deep hedgehog like expertise, but had an interdisciplinary type of expertise where they could sort of just like you and I have just done. We've literally gone from like my grandfather to. <laughs> economics to you know psychology and back and around again into history and all that sort of stuff um i think in some ways it should be i mean uh, all kudos to the fact that you and i are privileged with this opportunity to speak at the upcoming event i want to get some information out there to our listeners but isn't that sort of raising the bar on who organizers like our friends at uh, afp ottawa should be putting on the platform are people who are more like foxes who are not sort of dug into a single idea, but perhaps can see the world more interdisciplinary. Yes. <laughs> right. Just, yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, as I, I said, I, I, I used to do, I mean, speaking of AFP Ottawa and fundraising day, which is coming on May the yes. 6th, um, May the 6th. I, I used to do a lunchtime, very brief plenary. I did it for years and it was called Fraser's book club. And every yeah. year I would get up in front of 450 fundraisers. And in 10 minutes, I would talk about four books that had nothing, that had nothing to do with fundraising, but yeah. I thought it was really important that fundraisers read. So here's a book on body language. Here's a book on corporate strategy. Here's a book on psychology. You know, here's a book on marketing, um, it, but here's a book on communications. And I did, I never talked about what the book said. I just made the connection between this is why this subject matter matters to you. And it got to the point where a local bookseller, after about five years doing this, people would walk yeah. into this bookstore and start asking for this book because they heard about it. This guy did his research, found out where the source was, and he came to me and he said, can I call you two months ahead of fundraising day? Will you tell me what books you're going to talk about? Because I want to buy them and I want to have a book table outside the room. Yeah. And yeah. we set it up. And this guy did great business. Yeah. And people were buying books on all of these different things. because uh, And, you know, people are interested in it. And a big part of it, Jason, is we're both in kind of senior positions, I guess. Give them permission and tell them it's okay. Like, you don't yeah. have to just read the CFRE list. Yes, you should read it, but you can go beyond it. And, in fact, the imagination and the discovery is probably beyond the required reading reading list for your CFRE. Oh yeah, I, I saw I saw the response. I, so I published a book a couple of years ago, and I saw the res and, and it was definitely a very well researched and inter, inter interdisciplinary book. And a lot of the feedback that I got because I wasn't talking about tips or tricks, and I wasn't sort of it was a critique of it was a it was a critique of contemporary fundraising practices. And what I was basically doing is taking sort of all these sort of different places that this interdisciplinary sort of look at where fundraising finds itself. And I kept hearing back from people who said um, a lot of my sort of most enthusiastic readers said, you didn't say anything brilliant. You didn't say, you didn't give us any rocket science or anything. You didn't fix our problems for us. What you did is, is you put into words exactly what nobody else has ever put into words. And I think it's because I drew on, and I've done the same thing with the book project that I'm wrapping up now. I've drawn on things that allow us to sort of um, 
what, what I don't think we think about enough in fundraising, and there was something you said a few minutes ago that sort of had me thinking about this. We don't, oh, it's, it's your comment about donors. We have got to understand that our donors' identities are not in being donors. And, and the other thing is, is that over time, our identities change. And yes. especially in a world like now, if you think you're donor, we've, I've got a friend, um, uh, Travis in, in the Indianapolis who did his PhD and teaches at Butler, uh, on this subject of donor identity, we're making the assumptions. He's, he's critiquing the way that a lot of higher ed assumes that 20 years after they graduate from college, that their identity is still in their alma mater. And it's not their identity is in, I mean, shit, my identity right now is in the fact that I teach over at the college and that I'm writing a book for the first time and I'm trying to, I'm in a startup mode with my business. My identity is not what it was 20 years ago. And it probably won't be anything like what I expected to be in 20 years from now. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. I I completely agree with that. I want to, I want to give one kind of peak of the pyramid that people could build down from, if you like, in teaching. We lose our listeners. We lose our listeners at an hour. So you got six minutes to do it. I'll take less than that. <laughs> My, I've been, because I'm in plan giving, I've been studied a lot, the, the, the psychology of aging, uh, how people uh, come to terms with their own mortality, how we come to view death, how we finish our lives well or finish strong as opposed to kind of just kind of limping through to the end and so on. And I've come to the conclusion that people need three things to, to, live, to lead a really rich and rewarding life. We need purpose and meaning. We need something to do that matters, preferably to somebody else and not just to us. So we need purpose. The second thing we need is belonging. We need to be a part of a group, which is why the pandemic has been so hard for so many people, especially hardcore extroverts like me. But we need to belong to something, whether it's a nuclear family or a church or a religious organization, a political party, a neighborhood, uh, a group of friends. Uh, a Saturday night uh, hockey team or baseball team or whatever, we need to belong. We need to be social animals. In the Buddhist tradition, you need Sangha. That's one of the three critical elements of Buddhism. You need community. And the third thing we need is love. And to me, if you're a really good fundraiser, you know how to practice with your donors, giving them a way to be purposeful, giving them a place to belong, and giving them a place to give and receive all of the love that they want to. And if you can start at those three places and do that and connect with people, donors, volunteers, constituents, audiences, whatever you want to call them, if you can give them those three things and let them attach to it, you've done your job and my hat's off to you. Yeah. Yeah. One author I've read calls that the symbolic frame and and we have historically existed we inherited, again, going back to the Industrial Revolution, we inherited what she calls a structural frame. And what you just described is the symbolic frame. And yep. fundraising is so caught up in the structural frame because that's the way that the world worked in the 20th century. Well, we're in the 21st century. The world has changed. What you just described is a symbolic frame. So much of the, culture, so much of the yeah. culture that still drives how we raise money, to me, was built when Eisenhower was leading the Allied forces in World War II, it was how do you organize a big mammoth army for yeah. this unified position of, or this unified purpose mm-hmm. of invading Europe? And so it mm-hmm. gets all down to supply lines and tactics and 
logistics and yeah. all that stuff. And it's very org chart driven, right? Yeah. Yeah. We are so far past that world now, it's not funny. And yet so many parts of our world are still hanging on by their fingernails, trying to be industrial. And yeah, it just doesn't work the, anymore. Yeah, they're, 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 they're what I call fighting for the, defending the palace. It's a structure. It is a yeah. structure. And the structure is done. And, and, and everything you just wrapped up with, which is a beautiful way to wrap up with Fraser. I've del- most enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to take you up on that idea of meeting up at AFP somewhere, um, AFP icon or whatever. Um, because I, I, I think this notion of an inter, that's going to probably be the title of this conversation is can fundraising sort of really lean into this sort of interdisciplinary identity? Uh, Fraser, remind us about when the event is. And then after you do that, tell us how, uh, if any of my listeners are interested in reaching out to you and Holly at Good Works, remind us how to find you there, too. So, Sure. Um, it's the AFP Ottawa uh, annual fundraising conference. It's held over two days because it's a virtual event now, uh, May 5th and May 6th. Uh, you can get all the information you need, uh, including our speaking slots and everybody else's, by visiting afpottawa.ca slash fundraising day. Um, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to find us uh, on the web, uh, go to uh, goodworksco.ca and uh, you'll find Holly and myself there and uh, the story of the company and a little bit about us as people. All right, Fraser, it has been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. It was fun to rock the Casbah with you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.